Chapter four of an essay on the principle of population. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. An essay on the principle of population by Thomas Malthus. Chapter four. State of civilized nations probability that europe is much more populous now than in the time of julius caesar best criterion of population probable error of hume in one of the criterions that he proposes as assisting in an estimate of population slow increase of population at present in most of the states of europe the two principal checks to population the first or preventative check examined with regard to england in examining the next state of mankind with relation to the question before us the state of mixed pasture and tillage in which with some variation in the proportions the most civilized nations must always remain we shall be assisted in our review by what we daily see around us by actual experience by facts that come within the scope of every man's observation notwithstanding the exaggerations of some old historians there can remain no doubt in the mind of any thinking man that the population of the principal countries of europe france england germany russia poland sweden and denmark is much greater than ever it was in former times the obvious reason of these exaggerations is the formidable aspect that even a thinly peopled nation must have when collected together and moving all at once in search of fresh seats if to this tremendous appearance be added a succession at certain intervals of similar emigrations we should not be much surprised that the fears of the timid nations of the south represented the north as a region absolutely swarming with human beings a nearer and juster view of the subject at present enables us to see that the inference was as absurd as if a man in this country who was continually meeting on the road droves of cattle from wales in the north was immediately to conclude that these countries were the most productive of all the parts of the kingdom the reason that the greater part of europe is more populous now than it was in former times is that the industry of the inhabitants has made these countries produce a greater quantity of human subsistence for i conceive that it may be laid down as a position not to be controverted that taking a sufficient extent of territory to include within it exportation and importation and allowing some variation for the prevalence of luxury or of frugal habits that population constantly bears a regular proportion to the food that the earth is made to produce in the controversy concerning the populousness of ancient and modern nations could it be clearly ascertained that the average produce of the countries in question taken together is greater now than it was in the times of julius caesar the dispute would be at once determined we are assured that china is the most fertile country in the world that almost all the land is in tillage and that a great part of it bears two crops every year and further that the people live very frugally we may infer with certainty that the population must be immense without busying ourselves in inquiries into the manners and habits of the lower classes and the encouragements to early marriages but these inquiries are of the utmost importance and a minute history of the customs of the lower chinese would be of the greatest use in ascertaining in what manner the checks to a further population operate what are the vices and what are the distresses that prevent an increase of numbers beyond the ability of the country to support hume 
in his essay on the populousness of ancient and modern nations when he intermingles as he says an inquiry concerning causes with that concerning facts does not seem to see with his usual penetration how very little some of the causes he alludes to could enable him to form any judgment of the actual population of ancient nations if any inference can be drawn from them perhaps it should be directly the reverse of what hume draws though i certainly ought to speak with great diffidence in dissenting from a man who of all others on such subjects was the least likely to be deceived by first appearances if i find that at a certain period in ancient history the encouragements to have a family were great that early marriages were consequently very prevalent and that few persons remained single i should infer with certainty that population was rapidly increasing but by no means that it was then actually very great rather indeed the contrary that it was then thin and that there was room and food for a much greater number on the other hand if i find that at this period the difficulties attending a family were very great that consequently few early marriages took place and that a great number of both sexes remained single i infer with certainty that population was at a stand and probably because the actual population was very great in proportion to the fertility of the land and that there was scarcely room and food for more the number of footmen housemaids, and other persons remaining unmarried in modern states, Hume allows to be rather an argument against their population. I should rather draw a contrary inference, and consider it an argument of their fullness, though this inference is not certain, because there are many thinly inhabited states that are yet stationary in their population. To speak, therefore, correctly, perhaps it may be said that the number of unmarried persons in proportion to the whole number, existing at different periods, in the same or different states, will enable us to judge whether population at those periods was increasing, stationary, or decreasing, but will form no criterion by which we can determine the actual population. There is, however, a circumstance taken notice of in most of the accounts we have of China, that it seems difficult to reconcile with this reasoning. It is said that early marriages very generally prevail through all the ranks of the Chinese, yet Dr. Adam Smith supposes that population in China is stationary. These two circumstances appear to be irreconcilable. It certainly seems very little probable that the population of China is fast increasing every acre of land has been so long in cultivation that we can hardly conceive there is any great yearly addition to the average produce the fact perhaps of the universality of early marriages may not be sufficiently ascertained if it be supposed true the only way of accounting for the difficulty with our present knowledge of the subject appears to be that the redundant population necessarily occasioned by the prevalence of early marriages must be repressed by occasional famines and by the custom of exposing children which in times of distress is probably more frequent than is ever acknowledged to europeans relative to this barbarous practice it is difficult to avoid remarking that there cannot be a stronger proof of the distresses that have been felt by mankind for want of food than the existence of a custom that thus violates the most natural principle of the human heart it appears to have been very general among ancient nations and certainly tended rather to increase population in examining the principal states of modern Europe, we shall find that though they have increased very considerably in population since they were nations of shepherds, yet that at present their progress is but slow, and instead of doubling their numbers every twenty-five years, they require three or four hundred years, or more, for that purpose. Some, indeed, may be absolutely stationary, and others even retrograde. The cause of this slow progress in population cannot be traced to a decay of the passion between the sexes. We have sufficient reason to think that this natural propensity exists still in undiminished vigour. Why then do not its effects appear in a rapid increase of the human species? 
an intimate view of the state of society in any one country in Europe, which may serve equally for all, will enable us to answer this question, and to say that a foresight of the difficulties attending the rearing of a family acts as a preventative check, and the actual distresses of some of the lower classes, by which they are disabled from giving the proper food and attention to their children, act as a positive check to the natural increase of population. England, as one of the most flourishing states of Europe, may be fairly taken for an example, and the observations made will apply with but little variation to any other country where the population increases slowly. The preventative check appears to operate in some degree through all the ranks of society in England. There are some men, even in the highest rank, who are prevented from marrying by the idea of the expenses that they must retrench, and the fancied pleasures that they must deprive themselves of, on the supposition of having a family. These considerations are certainly trivial, but a preventative foresight of this kind has objects of much greater weight for its contemplation as we go lower. A man of liberal education, but with an income only just sufficient to enable him to associate in the rank of gentlemen, must feel absolutely certain that if he marries and has a family, he shall be obliged, if he mixes at all in society, to rank himself with moderate farmers and the lower class of tradesmen. The woman that a man of education would naturally make the object of his choice would be one brought up in the same tastes and sentiments with himself, and used to the familiar intercourse of a society totally different from that to which she must be reduced by marriage. Can a man consent to place the object of his affection in a situation so discordant, probably, to her tastes and inclinations? Two or three steps of descent in society, particularly at this round of the ladder, where education ends and ignorance begins, will not be considered by the generality of people as a fancied and chimerical, but a real and essential evil. If society be held desirable, it surely must be free, equal and reciprocal society, where benefits are conferred as well as received, and not such as the dependent finds with his patron or the poor with the rich. These considerations undoubtedly prevent a great number in this rank of life from following the bent of their inclinations in an early attachment. Others, guided either by a stronger passion or a weaker judgment, break through these restraints, and it would be hard indeed if the gratification of so delightful a passion as virtuous love did not, sometimes, more than counterbalance all its attendant evils. But I fear it must be owned that the more general consequences of such marriages are rather calculated to justify than to repress the forebodings of the prudent. The sons of tradesmen and farmers are exhorted not to marry, and generally find it necessary to pursue this advice till they are settled in some business or farm that may enable them to support a family. These events may not, perhaps, occur till they are far advanced in life. The scarcity of farms is a very general complaint in England, and the competition in every kind of business is so great that it is not possible that all should be successful. The labourer who earns eighteen pence a day, and lives with some degree of comfort as a single man, will hesitate a little before he divides that pittance among four or five, which seems to be just sufficient for one. Harder fare and harder labour he would submit to, for the sake of living with the woman that he loves. But he must feel conscious, if he thinks at all, that should he have a large family, and any ill luck whatever, no degree of frugality, no possible exertion of his manual strength could preserve him from the heart-rending sensation of seeing his children starve, or of forfeiting his independence and being obliged to the parish for their support. The love of independence is a sentiment that surely none would wish to be erased from the breast of man, though the parish law of England, it must be confessed, is a system of all others the most calculated gradually to weaken this sentiment, and in the end may eradicate it completely. 
The servants who live in gentlemen's families have restraints that are yet stronger to break through in venturing upon marriage. They possess the necessaries, and even the comforts of life, almost in as great plenty as their masters. Their work is easy and their food luxurious compared with the class of labourers, and their sense of dependence is weakened by the conscious power of changing their masters, if they feel themselves offended. Thus comfortably situated at present, what are their prospects in marrying? Without knowledge or capital, either for business or farming, and unused, and therefore unable, to earn a subsistence by daily labour, their only refuge seems to be a miserable alehouse, which certainly offers no very enchanting prospect of a happy evening to their lives. By much the greater part, therefore, deterred by this uninviting view of their future situation, content themselves with remaining single where they are. If this sketch of the state of society in England be near the truth, and I do not conceive that it is exaggerated, it will be allowed that the preventative check to population in this country operates, though with varied force, through all the classes of the community. The same observation will hold true with regard to all old states. The effects, indeed, of these restraints upon marriage are but too conspicuous in the consequent vices that are produced in almost every part of the world, vices that are continually involving both sexes in inextricable unhappiness. End of chapter 4 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards